This podcast is brought to you by Upcase. Improve your development skills by completing coding exercises that are peer-reviewed by real humans. Learn more at Upcase.com. Giant Robots Smashing Into Other Giant Robots. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Giant Robots Smashing Into Other Giant Robots podcast. My name is Ben Orenstein, and I'm here today with Chris Granger. How's it going, Chris? It's going well. How are you doing? I'm good. So uh, people probably will, will know you most of all for uh, being the creator of Lighttable. Yep. Which is kind of actually the only editor slash IDD to have tempted me away from Vim in the last uh, <laughs> 10 years or so. Uh, so congrats on that. Oh, thank you. It's funny. I was actually a, a Vim user myself before we created Lighttable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've been using it since, like you said, a decade or more at this point. Yeah. And I actually did end up using it for a while. I was doing a fair amount of Clojure and ClojureScript mm-hmm. and uh, found it to be really nice for that. For those that haven't seen it, it's, there's a lot of uh, capability of sort of uh, running code live in the editor and getting results in line and doing some crazy things that, that in a dynamic way that you never even thought about being dynamic, like hooking up to a browser with sort of things live impacting what's going on there and uh, some kind of mind-blowing stuff. Yeah, I mean, the idea behind Lighttable was that um, we have this like really long feedback loop, right, in programming. This mm-hmm. sort of at, at Microsoft, they 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 love it. They're like, oh, it's the edit, compile, debug cycle, and it's amazing, and it's great, and it's fantastic. The truth is that shouldn't be a cycle at all. It should just be edit, right? That should be the cycle. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it turns out that by removing it, by removing that that loop, you fundamentally start coding differently. You start thinking about software differently as these little bits that you kind of write, uh, you know, individually, right? And you, um, in, in the testing that we started to do, it turns out that that makes a really big difference in terms of code quality, interestingly mm-hmm. enough, um, because you get a much more intuitive sense of what the program is actually doing. Right. So I had a really interesting opportunity at Microsoft to do an end-to-end uh, usability study of Visual Studio. So I sat behind a one-way mirror for a little over a month. Hmm. Um, watching people just code and solve problems very generally. And one of the things that struck me was that universally everyone writes like a page of code at a time uh, and then, you know, hits a button and prays that they did it right, essentially. Okay. Whereas uh, people who, you know, more used to the way that you write things in Lisp, you know, with a REPL beside you would write, you know, a, at most a function at a time, right? A lot of times they're just sitting there actually trying single lines, single forms. Mm-hmm. And so the amount of errors that can sneak in are much fewer because at the whole time you've been basically testing the thing, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the quanta of work is smaller. Exactly. Before feedback. Exactly. Interesting. So you, you have a blog post recently where you wrote about, um, this is sort of like a really big picture of like what is programming and what's wrong with it. Yeah. Uh, and the, your, first, your first what's wrong with it was uh, programming is unobservable. And this seems to be sort of a first like thrust in that direction. Yeah, I mean, Lighttable basically is about trying to solve the unobservability problem. Um, you, you can look at unobservability from a number of different angles. One is, you know, not being able to see the effects of changes, which is a lot of what Lighttable was about. Um, there's also just the the ability to then, you know, watch sort of data flowing through stuff and and being able to sort of better intuit how the program actually runs, which is something that we generally don't have a good view into mm-hmm. outside of stepwise debuggers. But there's also observability in, in another class or another sense, which is being able to basically dig into how something works no matter what level of the stack it's at, right? And so mm. this is something that we sort of as an industry have taken as like should not be possible in a lot of cases, right? So like you look at, and I think I mentioned this in my blog post, like object-oriented programming itself is about encapsulation, about hiding things from you. 
And unless you have access to the code, you actually can't see what the, that thing is going to do. Mm-hmm. And again, one of the things that I sort of learned from that, uh, from that study that I did at Microsoft was it turns out being able to hold like the whole UML diagram of your program in your head isn't, isn't what makes a great programmer, even though that seems to be what we think it does. Mm. Um, one of the things that I learned was that it turns out it's your ability to box and unbox information as necessary. That's mm. what makes really great programmers. And, I, and I, at the time, I used to call this traversing abstraction. So uh, I, I kind of knew that no one would believe me at Microsoft when I my findings when I did that study. So I took one of our best guys, like this guy is a genius programmer, like mm-hmm. truly, truly genius. Um, stuck him in there and watched him use Visual Studio. Now this guy wrote a large portion of Visual Studio. So if anyone's going to know it, it's going to be him. Mm-hmm. And he basically used it the same way as everyone else did, which was interesting in and of itself. But what was amazing was that he always knew what mattered and what didn't at any one point in time. And it wasn't like he was keeping the whole UML diagram in his head. It was like, no, I've sectioned this part off as generally meaning this, even though it was something he'd never interacted with before, right? Hmm. Uh, and then when he got to sort of the edges of that, he would unbox only the parts of it that seemed necessary at any one point in time. And so it's, you can't keep everything in your head all at once, right? You can't model an entire system. Um, generally in your, in your head, but you can model individual pieces of it. And we as an industry sort of on the observability side have, have made that very hard for ourselves of like unpacking a box when something goes wrong, right? Huh. So it, it, that sounds like it almost contradicts a little bit what you said about uh, encapsulation creating these things where you can't see what's inside. It sounds a little bit like that, that strong programmer was kind of creating encapsulations around different things in the system. So, but not forced, Right. So it's, it's his ability to, to choose when and where and why and mm. how. Right. So okay. if he uses some object, you know, he uses some networking object inside of the .NET framework or whatever the case may be. Mm-hmm. Right. Like he's not going to be able to see inside of that. Well, until recently and since they open sourced it. But, you know, gotcha. he, he wouldn't have been able to see inside of it. Right. That's something he could not have done if there was something he needed to understand about how it worked. Yeah, it's interesting. You're you're saying this, and it makes sense to me. And, and I'm trying to like figure out why it doesn't like sound familiar. And I guess it's because I work with almost 100 percent open source tools. Yeah, like it's, and it's so rare for me to come up against this boundary of like, well, we just can't see that. Right, and it's fantastic. Like that's a huge, huge benefit over things. Mm-hmm. At the same time, though, there's still much like the edit compile debug cycle. There's still a a cost in that. Right, it's like not there directly for you all of the time. You have to go look it up. You have to go find where this came from. Right. Find out, oh, well, then they use this library. And you have to dig deeper and deeper and deeper until eventually you get to what you actually were trying to get to, right? Mm-hmm. It's not as simple as like right-clicking on something and say, tell me how this works. <laughs> right. Sure. So was that your conclusion from this user testing was like we need to make it easier to traverse abstraction? So that was one of the things. I mean, there was a lot of stuff that came out of it. Um, one of the things I learned pretty quickly was that pretty much everyone uses tools the same way, and the vast majority of those tools are unused, mm. <laughs> right? So all these crazy things that are inside of Visual Studio, which is a truly monumental piece of software, right? it's, it's 55 million lines of code, right? It's, it's like top 10 largest pieces of software in the world, <laughs> mm. And so very little of it gets used because it turns out what we spend most of our time doing is playing computer, right? It, it, it's not so much that we need to be able to write code faster or any of that. It's, it's really about understanding how the system itself works. Hmm. 
And most of our tools aren't very good at that. And some of that comes from the fact that the way our languages work aren't very good at making that obvious or aren't very good at making that easy to, to sort of traverse um, mm-hmm. in and of itself. And this is something we kind of started to run into with Lighttable is that because of the way our languages were constructed, I mean, it, basically, they haven't really changed since like the 1970s, right? Mm-hmm. Like we're, we're essentially kind of doing the same stuff. Because of that, because they haven't, you know, adapted to things like being able to uh, eval immediately, right? This is something that's not in like JavaScript, for example. And so we did a bunch of crazy stuff to make that work in Lighttable. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you, you are sort of hindered by a lot of what you can actually do in this observability and this understanding sort of category, right? Mm. At the point at which anything can change anything, you know, standard mutable programming, reasoning about that becomes very difficult. Right. So what do you see as your answer to this or towards, or, or towards this? Yeah. So, I mean, one of the things that I got out of that, out of talking to so many people about what is programming and what's wrong with it, all of that was to, to try and find out what fundamentally is broken. Like, how do we go about fixing it? What would fixing it even mean? Is it even fixable? And so that, that led us down to you know, a very interesting path of questioning of, okay, well, we did Lighttable, and Lighttable makes people faster, and that's cool. It's kind of this like incremental improvement on programming. What would stepwise, uh, stepwise improvement in programming be, right? Mm. Um, and, and the sort of thesis we had was, okay, well, we need to solve unobservability, this sort of indirectness, the fact that we translate everything, and the fact that programming is extremely incidentally complex, right? We spend a bunch of time doing things that have nothing to do with our actual problem. Mm-hmm. And the way we would go about, you know, doing an, a, a stepwise change would be to resolve those three from the very beginning, at the very bottom of the stack, you know, like the way we think about programming needs to include these three things. Hmm. And I did a talk about this at Strange Loop last year, right? And I, and I showed a, a prototype of something called Aurora. Uh, and the, the idea behind that was, okay, what would the world look like, rather, if programming was only data transformation? Like there was nothing else at all. No setting up of databases, no like managing time, nothing. It's just you have some data when that data changes, you know, things do the right thing. Uh, and the only, the only outside interaction with the outside world you actually have is more data, right? So mm-hmm. like if you wanted to represent UI, you build up a little structure and you send that out. And then there's something that on the other end of that that sits there and says, oh, I know how to deal with that. That's HTML and represents it as HTML. So sort of a dramatic simplification of the programming model. And that was really cool. So like on the stage, I showed like a complete data science workflow that took, uh, I did it in my hotel room the night before. It took 40 seconds, right? I mean, this is Hmm. like really fast, wonderfully simple kind of way of thinking about things. Interestingly enough, though, that that didn't turn out to be the the direction we went in. Um, Mm Mm-hmm. I got the opportunity. I was actually at one of Brett Victor's parties for his for his lab opened up, and we got the opportunity to, to like test that prototype, a better version of the prototype I showed, um, with a bunch of you know mathematicians and physicists, you know people at the top of their fields mm-hmm. who are not programmers, right? Because that's our real goal here is actually like along with making programming better for you know you and me, right? People who've been programming a long time, like there's an entire class of people who if they could do even like. of what we could do Mm. could solve so many problems, Mm -hmm. right? And so we want to get these people involved. And so we we tested this with them, and there was something that we kind of took for granted, which is that it turns out for non-programmers, the notion of scope is incredibly difficult to intuit and understand. Hmm. Um, and we even had like a really simple version of scope. There was like no variable shadowing. We drew like lines between things. We colored them the same. We tried everything, but no matter what we did, scope was still just like dreadfully confusing to folks. Hmm. 
And so that led us down this really interesting path of questioning. What would programming be like if there wasn't scope? So no scope means that like if I define like X equals something, that's true all over the place all the time? That's true all over the place all the time, right? And so that gets rid of things like functions, right? Because without scope, you can't really have functions. Um, It turns out it also gets rid of data structures, right? Because data structures implicitly create scope. Well, okay, so if you get rid of functions and data structures, you're starting to sound like you've gotten rid of most of programming, but it gets better, right? (laughs) Um, (laughs) uh, So if you get rid of data structures, you don't have anything to keep things in order anymore. So you don't have ordering in programming anymore either. Okay. That is programming, right? (laughs) What could possibly be left? Right. So the question I ended up asking was like, okay, well, is there anything ever that has worked this way? You know, I mean, we, we invented all sorts of crazy stuff in the 1970s. Is there anything back then? Mm. Um, well, it turns out that there is one massively successful example of all of these properties. Excel works this way. Mm. Excel has no explicit data structures, right? It's just got the grid. It has no imposed ordering. You can reorder things. Computations happen in an unordered fashion. Mm-hmm. And it is... It has modularity in the sense that, you know, a sheet may contain a value, right? That's important. But it is not encapsulating scope, which turned out to be the hard part for people, right? You can access any, you know, cell from any sheet anywhere, right? Yep. Um, and so, okay, well, that's, that's actually encouraging because Excel, you know, runs the world. I right. mean, 800 million people use it every single day. That's, that's a, good, <laughs> a good result. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, Excel is kind of constrained, right? Like, how would you build a website in it? How would you build a game in it? Yeah. And so, like, we kept asking questions. And it turns out that there's one other place where this is true. Um, and again, massively successful example. Databases work this way. So if you think of a relational database, right, you have tables and all that, but when you write queries, you don't know anything about data structures. Those don't exist. You're simply talking about relations. Right. There's no scope. You can get, you know, anything from anywhere, you know, barring access rules kind of a thing. And, uh, yeah, I mean, there's no scope, no ordering, all the, all the properties I just talked about. Yeah. So that's really interesting. What would it mean to program entirely inside of a database? <laughs> um, <laughs> Okay, now we're getting out there, right? Yeah. Well, it turns out, like all things, right, the 1970s had an answer for us here. They had an idea about what this would look like. And it was, uh, you know, there was a, the family of languages that everyone now today knows as the logic family of languages, mm-hmm. right? So like Prolog, for example, mm-hmm. was kind of like this. It was like you have this database of facts, right? And then you wrote these like timeless statements about those facts, and it would just kind of like do the right thing most of the time. Mm-hmm. Now, it turns out Prolog, you know, didn't succeed for arguably lots of reasons. I mean, it's still in use today. So for some definition of success, it certainly did succeed. Yep. Uh, some of it was the fact that Prologs were like really, really, really slow, um, especially back in the 1970s. We hadn't like invented most of the algorithms necessary to make it fast. Hmm. But there was another, uh, sort of a lesser known cousin that has been getting a lot of attention lately, uh, the past five or so years uh, of the Prolog. Uh, language called Datalog. And it came out actually five years before SQL. And it was meant to be a database as we think of databases today. So it, you know, it held a bunch of information, a bunch of relations. Um, and instead of using relational algebra to ask questions about that database, um, like you do with SQL, you used predicate logic, <laughs> mm-hmm. which is actually really hard in, in practice, um, but it turns out the idea was really good, which is that instead of asking you know, this like crazy mathematical query of things, you just gave it a template of what you wanted and it would fill it in. Right. 
And like I said, this has been having a big, uh, sort of a big renaissance lately. Right. Data log powers uh, the Datomic, right? Is that exactly. how you query it? Exactly. Which is yeah. the closure written database. Right. Rich, Rich Hickey's big database. thing. Yep. Um, yeah. And there's been a, so interestingly enough, this, the, the interest here was from the uh, semantic web community. So the RDF guys looked at this and they go, hey, data log's really good at doing graph traversal kinds of things, like graph um, queries and stuff. And like semantic web is just this giant graph, right? Mm. Um, and so they, they really sort of latched onto this and tried to, to, to make it fast again, try to make it better. So there's been a lot of interesting research on, on the data log side of things lately. Mm. And actually, one of the most interesting bits was uh, a paper out of uh, Berkeley where a guy named Joe Hellerstein or Hellerstein, I don't know which way he pronounces it. I know that, that pain. I know yeah. that pain with my last name. Uh, he took data log, added time to it. And at that point, it turns out you get a general purpose programming language. He added time to it. And then they wanted to specifically try and see how well it could do distributed systems kinds of problems. And so in this paper, they go on to describe a re-implementation of Hadoop, which was like 7,000 lines of code. To put that into perspective, that is roughly three orders of magnitude smaller than Hadoop is currently. Uh-huh. Uh, it's a little over 2.7 million lines, I think. Okay. It was as fast as Hadoop and had more features. And they did this with like just a couple of people in a few months. And hmm. this is like tremendously impressive result. Unfortunately, their their implementation of this stuff had some really heavy constraints. So, like, you could only ever have things that increased, um, hmm. <laughs> which turns out most real world problems can't be you know right. resolved that way. Yeah. Hey, this is really interesting. Right. Uh, and so we started looking more and more into this stuff to see if there was a way to relax those constraints to see if you know, okay, programming in this database thing has these properties. Is there a way to make programming in a database, like, not awful, Mm -hmm. (laughs) basically? You know, could you come up with a way to do this? And so a lot of what we started doing uh, was basically revitalizing some of this stuff from the 70s, right? Saying, hey, these guys had good ideas back before, you know, we kind of went off in these other directions. Yeah. Um, Is there something here that we could go with? And that's sort of where Aurora has sort of gone lately. Um, And we're actually renaming it. We're going to announce the name soon, I think. But yeah, the idea behind this is like, what would a new foundation for programming look like? And what are some of the properties that you would get out of it? Which is where it gets really interesting. Hmm. So does this start like down at like a language level, like this sort of a new language too? Yeah, so it is, you can, yeah, I think, I think a language is is basically the level to think of it as. So, I mean, the way we're implementing it, right, we're implementing it on top of JavaScript or whatever the case, you know, it's going to be hosted, right? It's not going to burn the world and say, no, you can't use anything you've ever used before. Right. That's a good way to share a grave, you know, with lots of other projects. Yeah, for sure. But yeah, it, it is it is a language. Although I think when people start using it, they'll find that you wouldn't probably describe it as a language. Hmm. So one of the forgotten ideas, um, although this is this is only about twenty years old, um, was from Charles Simoni, one of the original Microsoft uh, guys started a, a project called Intentional Programming. And the idea behind Intentional Programming was that there was some sort of like base representation of the world. And then what you would do is you would build domain editors, not domain languages, although they're kind of the same thing at that point, domain editors on top of that representation. 
And what that lets you do is, let's say you're doing math, and I talked about this in my, in my blog post. Let's say you're doing math, right? I should have something that looks like Mathematica when I'm doing math because mm. that's the way I interact with that domain. If I'm drawing some UI, right, I should have like a Photoshop kind of interface in front of me where I'm literally drawing it out on the screen and I'm just sort of connecting things to it to make it dynamic, right? Mm-hmm. Or if I'm flying a drone, right, I get a 3D you know, world in which I have the drone sitting there hovering and I move it around. Right? These are the, the natural representations of domains. Yeah. And the idea behind intentional programming was to represent that in the editing sort of experience itself. And so you know, it is a language. There's like this stuff and you can get underneath it and see you know, the way we've, we've formulated that language and all that. But most of the time when you're actually interacting with what we've done, you're doing so in domain editors. So you draw UI out when I'm doing data sort of cleanup and stuff. It kind of looks like Excel, right? When I start doing calculations, it starts to look like Mathematica. Hmm. And so it's a much, uh, much cleaner sort of representation of things. The big benefit out of that, remember, with the original goal of getting more people involved, mm-hmm. right, is that you really only need to be a domain expert. You really only need to know how to do math, right? Or you really only need to know how to draw in order to do these things, even though computation is behind the covers, Hmm. Um, and, and in my opinion, you know, the, the everyone should code movement and all, and all this stuff, right. is sort of misguided because we're not going to get everyone to be professional programmers, right. Mm -hmm. That's not going to happen, but just saying, here's a way of interacting with your domain, like you're used to, that just happens to have the ability to bridge domains, right. Which is basically what we're trying to do with computation most of the time. That's actually much more straightforward. That's something that doesn't seem like programming to people anymore, right? Yeah. It's kind of funny. When we test this stuff with non-programmers, we have a list of words we can never use. Right. Um, (laughs) Right? Yeah, totally. Code is one of those words. Mm -hmm. Huh. How do you feel about this effort? Like, it's, it's interesting to me. Like, you have sort of this arc where you wanted to dive really deep and see, like, what is it about Visual Studio that can be better? Like, how do we improve this? What's wrong? And then be like, okay, well, it's it's not it's this. So we need to make light table. And you're like, okay, well that's better, but it's not quite there. And now this is sort of, this is another thing. It's like, how, do you feel like you're honing in on this? Yes, I do. So it's, it's interesting. So if you go back throughout my history, so I've been programming for 17 years and about a little over a decade professionally. And if you look at my professional career it has always been about trying to make programming better, although I didn't realize it at the time. So mm-hmm. I started out originally, you know, building web frameworks back in the back basically when rails started to become popular so just like the early 2004ish time frame mm-hmm. and I started building web frameworks cuz at the time I thought hey you know what the problem is we have all this wildness in php land like we need to just create some structure here and and find a way to sort of bring this thing together and organization was going to be like this magical thing that was going to fix all of our problems and yes it made things better right rails is sort of proof of that right a big thing that they sort of introduced was just a logical way of thinking about the structure of you know some website Mm -hmm. you know and from there it went from okay keep writing frameworks to then working on visual studio which is more about the mechanics of writing code like what is or reading code either direction uh, and then with Lighttable, it's more about, okay, well, now it's about thinking a little bit more about how the computer is doing what it's doing. And in this case, what we've sort of come to the conclusion of is that it, it isn't any of those things anymore. It is more fundamental than that. It's actually how we think about programming, mm. right? Um, it's that we have an incredibly complicated set of things. And, and the, the analogy I used, and I loved it, it was from, from uh, one of the O'Reilly guys, is that 
what we've gotten uh, over years and years of trying to make things a little bit better, like I've been doing, right, um, is, is teacups stacked on top of teacups. It's this, ab- this tower of abstractions, mm-hmm. right? And unfortunately, what that's starting to do is lean a little bit. There's sort of this undercurrent in the industry as, as the notion of a machine has changed, right? We're not programming on the same computer we were in 1970. Right. We have these big distributed parallel systems that have very different concerns, right? That what we're doing right now probably isn't tenable in the long run. And so if that's the case, like it does come down to we need to sort of go back and see what we thought when we start, first started programming, hmm. right? Yeah. To see what those foundational ideas were. <laughs> it's, it's so interesting to me. It's like, it's like we've done a depth first search of programming. <laughs> yeah. and so like, we're like, this is the way. And we went way down that, that path. And like we're sort of looking around at that level, be like, yeah, none of these options look good now. And you've backtracked <laughs> 40 years to start yeah. over, which is, is gutsy. I like it. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're kind of crazy. To be honest with you, so I mean, so we're a startup, right? There's, there's three guys right now. And actually, we're in the process of closing a, a pretty exciting round of financing. So oh, cool. hopefully, we'll be more guys soon. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we're, we're an unusual startup in that we're sitting here doing like fundamental CS research, right? We're trying a bunch of things. I think in the past like five months, we've written seven different languages, right, to try them out. And it, fortunately, you know, the last three or four of them have all been sort of honing in on one that we think is the right one, right? And it's trying sort of different things to see what happens. But yeah. it is it is unusual. I will say that. We're we're a little we're a little crazy. You have a tweet which is startups often end up doing something of relatively little importance but with high business value. It's fun being different. Yeah. Yeah. I mean I mean who knows, right? Yeah. It's one of these it, it is absolutely a moonshoot. So, and mm-hmm. interestingly enough, the VCs, you know, we, we, like I said, we've been kind of trying to raise money, kind of like that, right? To some right. degree, it's like, okay, you guys are nuts. Um, but if this works, like the implications of a world where you know the Excel basically user base has the ability to build simple programs is huge. Mm. It's huge for us too, right? The implications of us not having to do that work anymore. Yeah. Right, like imagine the kinds of things we could start focusing on. And like my my co-founder is actually not a programmer; he's a biologist by trade. He went to Johns Hopkins and did hmm. you know clinical and uh, like true bench science. And he comes at this from the standpoint of right. I was a scientist; I was in these labs, and we relied on that one guy who mm-hmm. knew Python, right, mm-hmm. or that one guy who knew MATLAB to do our work. Imagine basically going to, you know, one of these biologists or one of these physicists and saying, here you go. Here is a system that you can use that you no longer have to have somebody else help you with, right? Right. The implications that has just in general are, that's, you know, what gets us up in the morning kind of a thing. Totally. So I'll ask like completely selfishly, is is the goal to get people that wouldn't be professional programmers into programming and and to empower them that way? Like, are you going to is, will this trickle down to me as well? Like, are you going to improve my life too? Yes. So one of the explicit goals, again, being crazy, was uh, we think that you have to just make programming better to get both of those things, mm. right? Like to make our lives better, right, as, as professional programmers, mm. and then to get more people into it. That's actually just kind of an accident that we sort of stumbled upon. It turns out that mm. a better thing for, for one of us is a better thing for both of us. That makes sense. In this case, it's just a dramatic simplification of, of programming, right? Because you're programming against a database. The only things you can do in a database are remember and forget things, right? <laughs> like huh. There are really no other operations. So yeah, you can update things, but if you think about an update, it's just forgetting the old thing or remembering a new thing. Mm-hmm. Past that, you really only have math and string operations, is right? There mutability in this database? 
Yes. So it turns out that if you have an explicit notion of time, which we do, immutability is actually a lot less important. Because what immutability is giving you is an explicit notion of time, right? It's like, well, here is the version of this that I have at, you know, some unspecified, you know, abstract version of time. Mm. It is mutable in the sense that, like, in memory, it's mutable. It is a database, though. So, like, when it serializes a disk, it does it more like Datomic would, right? Where it's sort of keeping this immutable record of everything that's happened. Mm. You know, and one of the one of the things that I didn't mention is sort of an implication of the fact that this is from the logic you know, sort of in the logic family of languages, yep. um, is that it separates the what you're doing from the how you're doing it. Mm-hmm. So something like, I want this to be immutable is literally a switch you could flip, right? Or I want this to be parallelized, right? The holy grail of, of systems has always been auto-parallelization, which has never worked except in one place, databases. Hmm. And so we moved our language to a database. And now it turns out that there are guarantees we can make about auto-parallelization. But again, it's just a switch you can flip. It's like you don't rewrite anything to make it parallelizable. You just say this is now should go to this machine, right, or whatever the case may be. Huh. Interesting. What is this going to look like when it hits the world? So our sort of initial bastion, right, because you can't boil the whole ocean, even though we're sort of doing that by definition. Um, mm-hmm is um, starting out with we want normal people and us to be able to build websites significantly, significantly faster. So this is something we all have tons of experience as. You know, the more you talk to a programmer, the more you realize half of what they do is just building websites. Yep. Um, even if they don't build websites for their actual job, it's like, oh, I need a testing dashboard. Okay, well, here's a website that I'm going to build, right? <laughs> like, yep. Yep. And so being able to build those by you know, drawing a UI out and then describing in these domain editors a very, like a a Kickstarter-like level of complexity, um, you know, website. So something that's basically what we're doing, spending a lot of our time doing. Mm -hmm. The thought there is that Microsoft sort of left us a wonderful gap in our our programming world and when they killed VB6, Hmm. which is that there is no substitute for the modern day line of business application. Right. If you wanted to just sit down as as you know Joe from accounting and program out some workflow, the only options you have are Excel, which is not going to give you a very good interface, right? Or to hire it out or hire RT to do it, right? Or whatever the case may be. Yep. But if you go back, you know, 15, almost 20 years ago, and you look at what people were able to do with VB6, Joe from accounting could actually sit down and write that himself, right? Mm. It's like we've actually taken a step back in some ways. We can build more complex things, but the barrier to entry has actually gone up quite a bit. I was on a user group tour when I was with Microsoft through Florida, and one of the amazing facts I learned is that 30% of all insurance software still runs VB6, right? Mm. Um, So there's been literally nothing that has sort of replaced this for people. And if you think about what a modern-day VB6 would be like or a modern-day line of business application would be like, it would just be something that would build you a website, right? Hmm. Um, and so that's sort of where we're thinking of starting first. Cool. I like that as a starting point. Yeah. It's sort of verifiable. It's like, can you build a web application faster and more simply? Exactly. As opposed to, like, how good is this language? Well, it has all these benefits and it's nice with this. So I like the real-world focus on that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we've been working on a, on a bunch of different examples we want to do. So when we actually uh, sort of reveal, which we're hoping to do probably early next year, you know, we want to show a bunch of different examples proving that, hey, this isn't just, you know, us being crazy. Like you can actually do really interesting and compelling things across a number of different fields. And it turns out one of the most interesting examples we could come up with, and this will sound kind of funny, is wedding planning. Hmm. 
Um, so an aspect of our system is that it's built on constraint solvers. And what that means is that you can, because of the way this stuff works, you kind of just describe you know, some aspects of your problem and we can actually resolve them for you. We can tell you what should happen. Hmm. And so what that means is in the wedding planning example, imagine you had a screen, right? And you draw out a seating chart. You literally draw the tables on the screen and you say, well, there are seats here and here. And then you just start saying things like, you know, mom loves Tim, but, but Tim doesn't like John. And well, we really want the, the bride's side of the family on the left and the, the groom's side on the right. And you, know, you describe all these things and you hit a button and we'll just solve it for you, right? Mm. Like it'll seem like magic. It certainly seemed like magic to normal folks, but even Definitely. to programmers, right? It's, it's, that's pretty magical. Most mm. of us have relatively little experience with this stuff right? because um, it's pretty hard to formulate problems this way normally, right? Mm-hmm. But it turns out we found a way to do that in something that looks and kind of reads like an executable specification, which is basically as good as you could ever get, right? If it kind of reads like the statement of the problem. Yeah. And so taking the wedding, the wedding example further, okay, well, you've got the seating chart, but you can also start to program out workflows just by, you know, basically dragging arrows between things. Um, you say like, oh, well, when I get an email that an RSVP email store, their eating preferences or whatever the case may be, or yes or no's, and we can start to actually sort of legitimately plan your wedding for you, right? It's kind of what it comes down to. Hmm. You've built this automated system. And you can imagine taking that, that exact idea and, and applying it to a completely automated business, right? So you have these brick-and-mortar APIs that let you send stuff, right, let you ship things without you know, just using an API call. You could actually build a business. And we, we have some examples of doing exactly this where you, know, you get an email or you, you know, they go to your website, they click buy, and the rest is all handled by the system that a non-programmer could build. Hmm. So yeah, it, it's it is interesting. Like it, it's kind of an awesome problem, um, but a scary one in the same sense. Like we have to pick something to start with, but the truth is, it's a general purpose language, so you could pretty much do anything with it, right? Yeah, and if you get tired of the high importance, low business value, and you want to flip it, you can just release that wedding planning software, and there you go. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it was it was kind of funny because uh, you know, again, when you talk to to investors, like, well, this sounds risky. You know, what's your plan for mitigation? And then it's like, well, okay, let's <laughs> say you know we can't get a billion people using this or whatever, but we can use it. And you know, in our testing, we're talking orders of magnitude difference in the amount of time it takes to build something. Hmm. So, as an example, I built a complete IDE, so an editor for the language in the language, and it took me less than a week. Um, and that was for a language that, you know, was, uh, you know, a month old and had bugs in it. Right. So wow. there, there's some pretty exciting sort of evidence so far that this is like, this, this has real benefits for you and I, right. Yeah. Not just, not just everyone else too. That's exciting. Yes, it is. And <laughs> we're, we're certainly excited about it. Yeah. You said early next year is the timeline for hoping to release uh, this? That's, that's what we're thinking. I'm not going to commit to anything, but yeah, that, that's, that's, that's the plan. Yeah. And so you're are you're testing this on on people currently though you're doing user testing and whatnot. Yeah, yeah. So we uh, primarily lately been working on the interface um, and and you know making it fast. Like I said, there's a bunch of implications to sort of this simplified model, and one of the things it turns out this can be really really fast. Hmm. Bummer. People hate that. Yeah, I know. It's it sucks. Um, <laughs> Yeah, it's fast even distributed, which is interesting too. So, you know, uh, there's only three of us. So, like, one of the other guys is working sort of on the back end. I'm mostly working on the front end right now, although, you know, fundraising has been a big distraction. So, sure. but 
yeah, we've been testing this out. You know, it's, it's actually great because I know he's not, you know, he's sort of our user and sort of not at the same time. But Robert, like I said, my co-founder is not a programmer by trade. Yep. Um, so, you know, we constantly test with him and a bunch of other folks that we know who are out in industry, you know, doing stuff. So hmm. awesome. So what's the dream if everything goes well? What do you what do you want to see? I mean, I think the dream is that we, we stop solving crappy problems, right? Like that that's what we're really after. Um, it comes down to there's there's a bit of a social mission here, which mm-hmm. is that we want the world to be better. And and my my interface to the world has largely been through a computer programming software, right? So the the, the quest is to make that better universally. But it was kind of more what I was saying before, like the implications of a world where, you know, anybody with a computer can do 50% of what a programmer can do today. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm after. That's what the goal is, right? Mm-hmm. And in doing so, like I said, I think we're actually going to make the lives of programmers significantly better at the same time. But yeah. the implications of making 40 million people, the you know, rough estimate of how many programmers exist in the world versus 800 million or a billion or 2 billion people, you know, everyone with a computer, like that's a pretty big difference. And it, right. it's worth trying to explore that, I think. Mm-hmm. And, and it's not like a new thing, right? This is a holy grail thing. It's always been a holy grail thing since, again, the 70s, right? Since we started to see, you know, personal computers come into play. We've wanted people to have this. But somewhere along the line, we sort of lost this idea that computation is a superpower, right? That computation is something that you should be able to do, not just bring up an app and play a game or something, right? But actually use the computer to think for you, use the computer to solve problems with you, right? Mm -hmm. And sort of our mission is to bring that back. Our mission is to make a computer a tool again, not just a thing that you play games on, not just a form of entertainment or a form of of reading, you know, content. Mm. Or, Or that you need to be a highly trained person to use. Or that, yeah, or that you need to spend the next five years of your life learning how to program, right? And that's, that's being generous, right? The next 10 years of your life learning how to program. Yeah, yeah. Cool. So you said that you, uh, it looks like some funding is happening. You're looking to hire potentially some more people. Uh, what kind of person are you looking for? That is a very hard question to, to answer, actually. Um, yeah. It, it turns out that we, you know, people talk about being full stack developers. No. We are truly full stack, you know, down from the literally the runtimes, the languages, right, a database, um, all the way up to really high level UIs meant to be used by non technical people. So we we span everything, and so you can't expect any one person to to have worked on or know much about that. Yeah, it turns out though that that there is some expertise that we ourselves don't have, and that we're kind of like hoping to get, you know. Like I mentioned before, we kind of use this really interesting stuff with constraint solvers and and sort of low-level database stuff. None of us have built production databases. You know, we have experience working with them, obviously, but, you know, I didn't sit there and write Postgres query optimizer. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, so we, we are looking for that kind of person, you know, to some degree, um, someone who's, you know, performance-minded and, and sort of worked at sort of a pretty low level before. All the way up to, you know, it'd be great. I would love to, you know, maybe hire somebody from like the Media Lab, for example, who, you know, is, is working on these new interface paradigms, who are working on things designed to, you know, bring more non-technical people into sort of these semi-technical areas. Mm-hmm. Um, but to be honest with you, it's everything in, in between, right? Because like, you look at my background, I have a German major, right? Would I have hired <laughs> me? I don't know. Uh, right. <laughs> um, like uh, the other guy we hired, Jamie, you know, he, he has a real you know, heavy interest in, in data log and all that sort of stuff. But 
you know, it, it was not immediately obvious that, that he would have been the right choice either. Right after meeting him, it was obvious that he was just a smart guy, very passionate about this problem. And that's more what we need than anything because right. you're going to learn new things. Like I, I never thought that I would be sitting here digging through 40-year-old papers, right, when, I, when we started doing this. I never thought I would be looking up how to do, you know, n-dimensional geometry because that's the way to think about these problems, right? Like wow. it's, just a, it's just a weird space and it it more comes down to uh, we need we need a smart you know or several smart people who are really passionate about this and like crazy enough to try <laughs> awesome well you maybe someone who's listening is is that person that would be lovely i would love to. it's inspiring when you're talking about it so i i i'd, <laughs> I'd be surprised if you didn't uh, inspire a couple people to be interested yeah no i mean it's a, it's a crazy problem, and it's, it's a really neat thing. It, there are very few cases where you'll get to work on quite literally everything, right? We've done – we've talked about everything from – I mean, we're not doing this now, but you could imagine – I don't know if you've seen it lately. There's been this, this uh, surge in interest in what are called unikernels. The idea is that you get rid of the operating system and you instead basically embed the language at the level of the kernel. Mm. Um, and the, the sort of uh, – most well-known example of this right now is Mirage, um, which is for OCaml. And the, you get lots of like really awesome performance and security benefits out of this. Well, this is something that actually makes a lot of sense for us because our entire language is actually this really powerful full-stack thing. And like you could embed it there and get really interesting you know, performance characteristics out of that. So you know, down from literally the metal, right, yeah. up to, to really interesting uh, UIs and stuff. So... I mean, it's just cool stuff. Yeah, sounds cool. Awesome. Well, I think that's a, a good place to wrap up. I want to let you get back to this so that you can release it on time so I can play with it. <laughs> sounds good. Okay. If people are interested in applying or talking to you, do you have a preferred way of uh, contact? Uh, I mean, you can shoot me an email, jobs at kodawa.com. That's actually the technical name of the company, K-O-D-O-W-A is a good place to, to shoot an email. Okay, awesome. Uh, well, thanks very much for coming by. I appreciate it. Yeah, no, I enjoyed our talk. Thanks. Yeah, me too. Today's show was produced and edited by Tom Obarski. If you'd like to access the show notes for this episode, you can go to thoughtbot.com slash giantrobots slash 111. Thanks for listening.